time has not come for impartial history. If the truth were told just now, it would not be credited. Robert E. Lee Welcome to the Revisionist History Podcast, where we set the historical record straight, no matter who it might offend. I'm Paul, and today's episode explodes some myths about a man whose legacy was, for over a century, immune to any scrutiny at all. Let's take an honest look at Robert E. Lee, General of the Army of Northern Virginia during the American Civil War. I should probably begin by acknowledging that I was personally very late to the efforts of history lovers and historians to even admit myths about Lee existed. I grew up in Texas, half a country away from Lee's home state of Virginia. Here, we're still more concerned about the Alamo than the Confederacy. Yet Lee looms large here, even today. Maybe we have an affinity for lost causes. After all, Texans remember the Alamo, where we lost much more clearly than the Battle of San Jacinto, where we won. It didn't hurt that in all the photographs we have of the period, Lee looks more like a kindly grandfather himself than a man of war, an honorable soldier forced by events beyond his control into a position he never wanted. A lot of that last sentence is true, but there are plenty of myths about Lee as well. Sometimes, to be historically honest, you have to expose the myths about even your childhood heroes, Let's do that now. This is neither wholly true nor wholly myth, but it's been hammered into generations of school children, both north and south, for so long that it has skewed much more to the myth side. Lee did in fact resign his commission in the Union Army when Virginia seceded because he would not take up arms against his home state. He didn't accept command of the Army of Northern Virginia in order to defend the institution of slavery, but to defend Virginia. However, since Virginia seceded specifically because of the issue of slavery, this ultimately was what he was fighting for, whether he saw or acknowledged it that way or not. The idea that he was opposed to slavery comes largely from statements he made following the war, when the issue had already been decided. In 1866, for example, he claimed he had, quote, always been in favor of emancipation, gradual emancipation, end quote, and in 1869 said he was happy slavery had been abolished. However, before the war ended slavery forever, Lee was not as definite in his views. He acknowledged that slavery was, quote, a moral and political evil in any country, end quote. But like many of the time, he believed slavery was both ordained and approved by God, and that blacks were inferior to whites because of, among other things, the so-called biblical curse of Ham. Actions, however, speak louder than words. At the time of the war's outbreak, Lee had owned slaves for more than 30 years, and in April 1861, he held around 200 slaves. Lee may have, as a Christian, had reservations about slavery as a concept, but he had few qualms in actual practice, and the idea sometimes put forward that he was at heart an abolitionist is laughably wrong. Myth number two. Lee was superior to Grant and other Union generals as a military strategist and general, but was simply overwhelmed by the Union's greater numbers in men and equipment. This myth is, in many ways, the very heart of the Southern lost cause myth. The common narrative has always been that he was brilliant, both as a strategist and tactician, who did more 
with fewer men and resources than any of his northern counterparts. Lee did, in fact, win some early victories that were both impressive and improbable, the most notable being at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Yet these victories aside, Lee's near-obsessive quest to destroy the Army of the Potomac caused him to repeatedly take unacceptable losses in situations where victory was clearly not attainable. Antietam and Gettysburg are the most egregious examples. He far too often refused to listen to his commanders or delegate duties to them, preferring to issue all commands himself. It seems the only one of his generals he trusted was Stonewall Jackson, and with good reason, as Jackson was instrumental in Lee's victories and sorely missed after his death in May 1863. In hindsight, it would have been far wiser for Lee to have fought a defensive war than the all-out offensive he favored. Historian James McPherson, author of the excellent Battle Cry of Freedom, said it best. The South could win the war by not losing, but the North could only win by winning. Lee also benefited greatly from the sheer ineptitude of the Northern generals prior to Grant. Men like McPherson who never pressed the advantage when they had it, allowing Lee to escape what should have been complete annihilation multiple times. Grant put an end to that weakness on the Union side, and the South was doomed. Lee was a good general to be sure, but much like Hannibal in the Punic Wars, it's hard to consider someone a military genius when their side lost. Myth number three, Lee was committed to reconciling the North and the South after the war. It's true that Lee ordered his men not to engage in a guerrilla war, both near the end and immediately after his surrender at Appomattox. He also urged former soldiers to apply for pardons rather than leaving for South America and Mexico as some did. But Lee fell short as a voice for reconciliation in some key areas. To his dying day, he said that the North had to earn the trust of Southerners after the war, rather than the more logical other way around, causing Grant to comment simply, Lee is behaving badly. Lee also caused continued division regarding African Americans after the war. In spite of some comments that it was good slavery had ended, he maintained that it would be better for Virginia if the 500,000 freed slaves living there left. His exact words were, quote, I think it would be better for Virginia if she could get rid of them. End quote. Hardly a voice of reconciliation. So that's three myths about Robert E. Lee. These myths have persisted for over a century and have only recently been challenged by serious historians. But it's crucial to see him as he was, not as the hagiographers deified him, if we're to ever fully come to grips with a period that still, in ways obvious and subtle, divides our nation today. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it both informative and entertaining. If you'd like to help us keep episodes like this coming, please consider clicking on the support this podcast link in the show notes. It'll go a long way towards helping us create more episodes and hopefully becoming completely ad-free. Thanks a lot.